0: Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Mike Currier. Mike is a jiu-jitsu black belt under fourth degree black belt professor, Michael Chapman. Mike began training gymnastics at age 10 and was a nationally ranked gymnast until 1999. After retiring from competitive gymnastics, Mike transitioned into coaching. He has coached for multiple gyms, including the world-famous Camp Woodward in Woodward, Pennsylvania. While living in Pennsylvania, Mike also worked as an assistant gymnastics coach for Penn State University. He began training jiu-jitsu in 2014 and started coaching movement classes shortly after. In December of 2015, Mike opened his first jiu-jitsu academy in Sherwood, Oregon. In June 2018, Mike and his wife Samantha, a BJJ brown belt, and their son moved to Fountain Hills, Arizona, where they opened Impact Fountain Hills. Impact was the first jiu-jitsu academy in Fountain Hills and remains the only tumbling parkour gym in the area. This episode focuses on two topics I wanted to explore. One is the topic of belt testing, which arose from my conversation on another podcast. The other topic revolves around a Reddit response from one of the Mendez brothers repudiating accusations that Colabate was a sandbagger due to his being a 16-year-old blue belt who routinely beats black belts and at present moment seems to be crushing it at ADCC trials. After the conversation, I still feel no real resolution on either topic and am left with even more questions to explore in further episodes. In terms of the belt testing topic, I can respect both positions for and against. One thing to note, belt tests vary widely. Please note, I am a novice to the topic, but some of you have told me these tests are largely ceremonial and that the decision to belt someone has already been made in advance. Others have said they are indeed technique tests that result in a pass-fail scenario. The vast majority of you have told me that your academies do not test and that belts are given by the discretion of your instructor. And that process varies widely in of itself. As for the Kolobate controversy, to me this seems to be more a topic of the subjective nature of belting itself. The self-imposed age limitations, various standards, there is no ubiquitous agreed upon logic to the whole thing, which results in even more questions. Additionally, with the advances in BJJ information, teaching techniques, nutrition, starting younger, and training protocols, it makes me wonder if we need different tracks for practitioners. For example, amateur, a minor farm league type of division, and a professional track, or something to that effect. Okay, some housekeeping notes. This was a last-minute interview, so you may hear me and Mike refer to that without giving context. We start the conversation with a recent situation where Mike agreed to a match but had to pull out with short notice. Mike will clarify why in the conversation. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Leave us a message at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt and let us know whatever you're thinking, guest ideas, etc. And like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt and check us out on all the socials by searching for forever white belt. And with that, I give you Mike Courier. And we're back with our friend Michael Courier. I'm ready, yes. Always down to be on. So Mike, where have you been? This guy's life is crazy. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know, it's been a it's been a good year, man. It's been a really good year. I think I'm up to like nine countries this year for jujitsu. <laughs> So, you know, I was in Mexico earlier for combat jiu-jitsu, and then I did, I was in Germany and Amsterdam in July, and then I just got back from doing three seminars in Ireland, a couple days in Paris. So I'm back in Arizona for four weeks, and then I go to St. Bart's for another Globetrotters camp in the French West Indies. And then in starting in uh, right after Christmas, I'll go to Austria and I'll do Austria, Switzerland, Germany, Italy, France, and Spain.
0: Wow. It's a good life. So recently you did have an event where you were invited to something last minute. It was kind of really weird. You had to cut a bunch of weight last minute. Can you recap that experience? What happened there?
1: Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, I'm never one to talk bad about any promotion. I think that it's a very difficult job. I think that it's largely underappreciated how hard it is to manage grapplers. So to, to preface this, we had lots of meetings in the early stages of Submission Underground. And I was sat down with the matchmaker. We kind of had powwows talking about what direction we wanted the event to go in. And um, the matchmaker for Submission Underground, Heather Standing, she was doing mixed martial arts promotions primarily. This was her first kind of dive into grappling. And uh, one of the first things I said was, you're going to love this. Grapplers are so easygoing and they're, they're so much less ego than mixed martial arts. And that was me being extremely naive. And we kind of find out, you know, it's very challenging managing these guys. So Third Coast Grappling was here in town in Arizona. I got a message I applied for the event. I got a message in Germany, I think, or in Paris on October 11th. It was a text message and it said, Hey, you know, do you want this guy at this weight? And I replied back and said, yeah, I would love that match. Let's do it. Sign me up. And I heard nothing else from the guy. No confirmation, nothing Mm. like radio silence. And then I got home Tuesday evening of last week and went to bed. I slept for like 10 hours because I was jet lagged. And uh, I woke up and I had like five messages on Instagram saying, you know, good luck on your fight. It's going to be a good match. And I said, wait, wait, what, what, what match? And so I got the email, like the mass email that goes to all the subscribers and it had the fight list. And I was on there against the person whom I've never interacted with. I had no knowledge of who this guy was. I was never offered a match with him. You know, and and on top of that, after traveling, I was like 149 pounds and the match was at 135. And so I had two days to see if I was going to make, you know, cut the weight, see how I felt. You know, I have uh, some lingering injuries that really usually get aggravated from flying. So I was talking with one of my coaches, uh, a great guy named Chad Lyman. And um, he said, why are you doing this? There is no pay. It's not even streamed on, you know, fight pass or, or even not not even flow grappling, you know, it's like a fight Mm -hmm. TV thing, which is fine. And and normally I would say yes, but he's like, you're going to try and cut all this weight and then go out there and and do a match. And, you know, two days after landing, it just seems silly, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was really hard for me to say, no, I I don't like to say no. Heck you asked me, I was literally in the shower when I saw the message from you (laughs) and uh i say yes to everything so here i am you know so uh, i don't like saying no to matches but it, it just wasn't the smart match to take i have to look out for my best interest and i did say yes to the match on wednesday morning and uh, we you know we we kind of agreed that the, the weight could go up a little bit and so i spent all day wednesday in the sauna and uh you know ultimately i just thought you know this is silly uh there's mm-hmm. there's more matches to come there's almost no benefit The downside of the whole thing was Ron Henderson was my opponent. Uh, He's Mm -hmm. a great guy out of California. I've seen him grapple before. I love the matchup. Ron was told seven days before I was told. And wow. so he was preparing for a match. And so, you know, I don't feel good about that at all. You know, mm-hmm. so I actually approached him at the event. He was one of the referees. And I approached him and just said, hey, man, like, this is what happened. Unfortunately, he wasn't willing to hear it. He was kind of thinking I was just being scared and pulling out, you know. Sure, and so, sure. um, it is what it is. I, I, I can never control how you feel about me. I can only know that I'm trying to do the best things I can do as a person. So. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a very unfortunate situation.
0: Did you end up going to, hey, so you were at the event.
1: I was at the event. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up cornering uh, Anthony Birchak and I had a bunch of friends who competed. So um, yeah, so I was there. I, I paid, you know, I paid my my fee to get in and my wife and I had a great time there. It was a great show. And of course, once I'm there, I'm thinking, man, I, I should just go, I should just go fight this guy, you know, but, <laughs> but that that's just me, you know, like I love to grapple. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. but you know, gotta be smart sometimes.
0: Mike, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about, which are kind of intriguing me as of late. I had a discussion on another podcast. These guys had uh, come through a system where belt testing was a very normal and expected thing. I won't name the the lineage or anything like that, just out of respect for them. I I don't mean to speak ill or anything like that. But as soon as I started bringing up the topic of uh, belt promotion, they're all, okay, so how did your testing go? Did you do gauntlet? Did you do this? Did you do that? I was kind of taken aback because I've never known of an academy to do testing. I knew there were a few of them out there. What are your thoughts on belt testing in general? Yeah,
1: we, we actually, within Impact, we have one academy that does a pretty strict belt testing and, and I hate it. I think it's just a complete wrong way to go. And I want every academy to do things their way. There, there should be variety, right? I think if you enjoy that style, that's fantastic. But personally, I think that it's my job as a professor to know everyone well enough to be able to belt them kind of on the on the site, you know? So like we had a discussion at my academy in Oregon. We were starting to get a lot of members. We had, you know, a lot of people. So I met with my my co-owner and we were talking and, and, and he was suggesting, suggesting, suggesting ways for us to better kind of keep track of everybody,
0: Hmm. you know, and and
1: one of his ideas was maybe we should have the guys roll in front of like these security cameras and we can watch the roll back and we can kind of study them. And and I hated that idea also. Hmm. You know, I thought that as I get more members, my job gets more difficult and it's my Hmm. job to rise to the occasion not to find loopholes not not to find easier ways to manage people i put that burden back on me and so when i think you're ready for a belt it's 100% subjective it's my opinion and there is no paperwork behind it we don't even announce it at my academy and so we don't have like a, a belt promotion day just show up to class and it might happen that day and we also never do more than one belt per day and so if you get promoted it's your day it's 100% cool. dedicated like to that. you and the focus is on you cuz it's a big deal
0: I did run two informal polls on Facebook and the vast majority of people who train do not do uh, belt testing at their academies. It was easily three to one on uh, several different groups. And it seems to have a history in like formal Eastern tradition. Also the topic that some people are just not good testers in general. The other topic is when students roll with you, are you evaluating them? Should they be expecting that they should perform in a certain way?
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, you mentioned some people are not good testers. Conversely, some people are great testers and not good at applying it, you know? So, and that's what I see happen often where you'll have a guy who he can, she can demonstrate 50 techniques perfectly, but he can't roll to save his life. There's no artistic ability behind it to put it all together and to find the transitions that, that really make it work. Right. So, Just saying, hey, here's a list of 50 techniques. I want you to perform them. I'm going to grade you an A through an F on them. If you get a 3.4, you are a blue belt. You know, so it doesn't make sense to me. I think that it has to be the sum of all of your performances. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, every time I roll with one of my students, it's never never a fight, right? I'm never sparring them. Mm -hmm. I'm always testing them, every roll, every day. And I'm always collecting that data. It's really important uh, both for me and the student that we interact, right? So it's my job to make sure I'm touching everybody weekly. You know, I'm getting a role with a guy I never choose to roll with or, you know, for whatever reason or the guy who's avoiding coach because he doesn't want to get smashed. I have to grab that guy and make sure that I'm not only watching his roles, but I'm rolling with him. There are times when I don't choose to roll at the end of class, but I'm also not releasing them and going to check my phone and waiting for the timer to stop so I can go home like I'm on the mats and I'm studying everybody. It's such an incredible responsibility that I have to really rise to the occasion and study these people and know them well. You know, I think when you look at traditional martial arts using a belt testing system like Taekwondo, I have to imagine, I don't know this, but I have to imagine that in the early time of karate and Taekwondo, there was no belt testing. It was your performance dictated your abilities, right? Mm -hmm. So we only go to a belt testing system when the needs of the class outweigh the abilities of the professor. So when the professor can no longer manage the number of students he has, He has to find a way to file things and he has to find a way to make it systematic. That way he can take the burden off of his shoulders and say, okay, you, you passed the test, even though I haven't rolled with you, I don't know you that well, but you check all the boxes. So here you go. I think it falls in line with a lot of the watering down of jujitsu. You know, a lot of these academies now, one major academy, they do your stripes based on attendance, regardless of your performance. And that's crazy. I got my black belt in just about six years. Had I had to follow a certain system, I may have been held back. Even though my performance was warranting a belt, I may have been held back because I hadn't checked all the boxes for time. And conversely, I never think you should be given a belt regardless of your time in the mats. You know, one thing I tell my guys all the time, this whole adage of a black belt is a white belt who never quit is bogus. Like if you're my student for 40 years, and you're performing like a brown belt, you're going to stay a brown belt. Like, I'm never going to hand a black belt out because you had time served.
0: That dovetails quite nicely into the next topic I want to discuss. I was reading a lot of stuff on Reddit and a lot of things. I think it was, I can't remember which Mendes brother it was, perhaps he that was responding to a lot of the commentary of, I don't know if you're familiar with Colabate. He's a blue belt 16 year old okay. who's been just destroying, right? Just absolutely crushing everyone. He has to be a blue belt, right? My question is, do we need, and then there are people calling him sandbagger. So I'm curious, your idea, your thoughts, do we need like a professional division? Do we need to change the belt system for these types of things? And then additionally, it seems like kids now, they're just, they're so much better. They're just so much better. The sort of the level of normal has changed at different ages.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, the, one of the one of the nice things about no-gi and, you know, 99% of professional grappling is no-gi. The belts are irrelevant, right? You have a professional event. They rarely, if ever, say you have to be a black belt to compete. We've seen blue, purple, and brown belts do very well. Ethan Krelliston was a brown belt until 10, 12 months ago, and he's been dominating black belts for years. Nikki Rodriguez, the same thing, right? He's a blue, purple belt and uh, he's doing very well. And when I was a blue belt, I can recall a guy who won blue belt world championships three years in a row. And I said, well, if you win blue belt world championships three years in a row, then you're a purple belt, right? And that was just me not fully understanding what we do, right? I think that you can look at a guy like, so I know Cole's grappling just from what I've seen. Never met the kid. I don't know who he is. I mean, as far as personally, I've seen him grapple. He's he's incredible. But I think that so much more goes into the belt than just ability. Like at my academy, I, I tell the guys, the purple belt is the hardest belt you'll ever earn from me. Because I think that anybody can be a really dominant blue belt and can really do well against everybody in the room, maybe even compete well. But When you get the purple belt, you have the ability to help a new student, you have the ability to grab a new guy who maybe is bigger and stronger than you and beat him without breaking a sweat, right? Like you have finesse into your game. You can play with somebody and you can really show them that jujitsu is not a fight, right? This is me utilizing my superhuman abilities against this tiny little thing, right? Like there's no effort there. As you move on, I think a brown belt is everything skill-wise that a black belt is. Like you've mastered all the techniques. A brown belt can, can roll with any black belt in the world and, and hang just fine. And they're doing everything correctly, right? But I think when you get your black belt, you have to provide something to the sport. And so you can't just take right? So if you're you're a fantastic competitor and you're mastering the skills, then in my opinion, you're just taking from jujitsu, right? You're doing jujitsu, but you're taking from jujitsu. When you get your black belt, you've given something back, right? Maybe you've spread jujitsu to a new community and you've opened an academy in a place that had never had an academy, or you are, you know, running a podcast or you're, you know, you're doing instructional videos, or even if you're just coaching at your academy, right, you're doing something that grows the sport, and you're providing some benefit to jujitsu. So for me, that's the crux of the belt system. I think you have to, I don't care how good you are, you know, maybe that blue belt that wins three years in a row is a buggy choke master, right? And, and, And he's getting his guard passed, but he's buggy choking everybody doesn't mean he's a purple belt. It means he has a trick that he does very, very well. Like Nick Rodriguez, he is just this powerhouse of a man who has incredible wrestling and Mm -hmm. he's beating all these, you know, he's second at ADCC, like that's no slouch, but it doesn't mean he has a depth of game that warrants the next belt. It just Mm -hmm. means he's very, very good at what he does. That's kind of where I see it.
0: You don't think there should be any sort of bifurcation in terms of IBJJF of like a Truly an amateur versus professional, you know, sort of, we can look at the NFL, right? Where you have professional NFL and then you have, you know, the college, you know, or you don't see any sort of farm league type of situation or anything like that.
1: You know, the way I see it, any, any event that you pay to be a part
0: of is farm league. So they can run an open or something is what you mean, right? Or,
1: yeah, I mean, like, so If you pay me to show up, I'm a pro. If I pay you to show up, then I'm an amateur, right? So I think that if you run the IBJJF as an amateur division, I think that, you know, there's a lot of highly qualified black belts that compete exclusively in the IBJJF. I don't think they would be in the top 50 against some of the pros out there, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a clear divide, right? Mm -hmm. I think that obviously Cole is going to be a blue belt, but if Cole entered the, you know, the Iowa open as a black belt, he'd win it. I have no doubt in my mind about that. So it's like, I'm completely okay with keeping the, the minor leagues, the minor leagues. But I think that just like you're going to have, you know, there's no belt system in the NBA, but there's clearly a separation between the best guys and even like the sixth man of the year. Like he's not going to be the all-star. Right. And like, so there's a divide there, but they're still all pros, you know, if you take the sixth man of the year and you drop him into the farm leagues, he's a champion. You know, so yeah, I think that you have to look professional grappling as these are guys who are not necessarily demonstrating the whole of what the belts are supposed to be, but they are the best competitors, and I like that.
0: So you're saying is we basically do have an unspoken sort of farm league built in to jujitsu, right?
1: Yeah, sure. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I think that, like, you know, I, I follow, you know, obviously my Instagram page is all jutsu guys. And so um, it's always comical when you see a professional grappler enter grappling industries. He runs through these guys who are accountants and plumbers, and he's a professional grappler. And it's like, and I'm not saying they shouldn't do that, but it's always like, okay, come on, of course he's going to go through and run through these guys. And a lot of them use it as kind of a warm up for a big event. I mean, I did that with Naga this year. I competed at Naga before Combat World. And it was just like, Hey, I I need to get some mat time before I go fight, but it is a different level of skill, you know? Yeah. I I think it should be different. And I like that.
0: It leaves room for the, the walk-on, right. You you hear about these like miracle NFL events where someone does the walk-on on the field. Right. And then there's like, this guy comes out of nowhere.
1: Yeah. Which I love. I think that like that third coast grappling event from last weekend was called the underdogs, you know, and it was uh, the main event was a, was a 16 man middleweight bracket. Eight of them were local kind of up and comers. Eight of them were pretty established competitors. And it gave that guy a chance to go out there and win the whole thing, you know, but I think what you saw was um, out of that first round, I think everybody who was supposed to win won, but it still gave him the chance. I mean, I was kind of viewed that way on you just do overtime. You know, when I did overtime, I was brought in on like two days' notice, and I had never done an EBI event before or any Bravo event before. And my first match was against Marcelo Cohen, who at the time was like the fifth-ranked bantamweight in the world, and I beat him really quickly. And it was kind of like you know, watching it back, the commentators were like, "Oh my God, that, that this shouldn't have happened. It didn't go down like it's supposed to go down. I was supposed to lose, and Marcelo goes on to the next round." You know, and so. I love that. I mean, that that gave me an opportunity to go out there and say, hey, like I've been fighting guys who were at the bottom end of the league. Now, now I have a match against the guy who's one of the best in the world, you know, and, and I got to prove myself. And it was really cool to get that opportunity.
0: Going back to the discussion about the kids or the topic of the kids and how just how damn good that they're getting now, it sort of reminds me of the Moore's Law type of thing, right? How everything sort of double X's every year, whatever the hell. It just does seem like there's been a hockey stick type of thing. And this is just sort of anecdotal observation here. And things are just changing so fast when you have so many kids that are so young, being able to compete at such a a high level now. Does the bar need to change or or do we just go with it? Because there there just seems to be such a huge gap in terms of age and skill now.
1: I think with all due respect to our forefathers, right? I think that if you put Kanan Duarte against Hickson in his prime, I think Kanan murders him. The game of jujitsu is so much more deep, the depth of techniques and the depth of skill. uh, And I think that basis from a lot of these kids are going to be starting when they're five, six years old. I mean, my son started, he put his gi on when he was three, Hmm. you know, he's 10 now, you know, he's, he's going to grow up in a gym and he gets to train as much or as little as he wants. But a lot of these kids are going to be 10, 12 years in by the time they turn 18, maybe they're not ready for a black belt yet you know, like Cole, but their depth, their their range is going to be so deep that I just don't think it's even comparable to anything that we've seen in the history of jujitsu. I think that
0: doesn't it seem like the science has just, I mean, exploded too, in terms of just uh, the science of nutrition, fitness, all the amount of information and jujitsu information that's out there now all the minds as Sven Grotem would say, computing power, right. That's available now gives them such an advantage.
1: Yeah, and I I think that there's just more thought going into everything, right? I mean, now we're starting to see guys who are taking this as a professional athlete approach, you know, and I think that as the money gets better for competitors, you'll see more professionals doing it. You know, Joe Rogan has talked about the heavyweights in the UFC, right? You have these guys, these are guys who are 6'2", 265 or bigger, and if they were really amazing athletes, they would have played a traditional sport, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're that big, you can probably get into NFL, NBA, you know, something. You're, mm-hmm. you're a giant human who's fairly athletic, but the real athletes are doing that and they're not doing MMA. And so we're seeing a watered down version of what could be. And that, I think mean, that's why you see these guys who are, you know, Derek Lewis openly talked about not even liking MMA he's not a fan of it. He doesn't like training. Rarely trains. You know he's getting better now that he's kind of taking it more seriously. But you know he's a guy who just walked around and was like, "Hey, I can I can slug people," you know. And so I think you we saw that for a long time in Mm jujitsu where you have these guys who must have a day job like they can't support themselves off jujitsu and they're just training in the evenings and they're not giving it their all and they were still winning world championships. I think with the advent of the professional. League, you're seeing guys who are professional athletes. So it makes a big difference. You add that to the fact that some of these guys started 15 years ago at five years old and now they're 20, and, and the sport is just going to keep getting more and more advanced. I think mm-hmm. that there's no end in sight. I was in Poland and, and uh, uh, Wim, Wim de Putter, the great guy out of the Netherlands, he was talking in one of his seminars. He, he was comparing jiu-jitsu to chess, not in a way of like move for move, but and, and not even a way of like a strategy, but in the way that. you play checkers you have x amount of total possible games you can play you know whatever a million games you can play well with chess everything moves differently so you have trillions of possible games this is okay i have i have three ways my head can i can turn left and right i can look up and i can look down i can move my shoulders i can twist my torso i can do this right and you start figuring out how many different ways your body can move and then you add a second person to that right and so the techniques are limitless. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's infinite number of ways that we can implement new techniques. And so Mm -hmm. it's only going to get deeper, I think.
0: Michael, thanks so much for uh, exploring these topics with me. Some quick topics I wanted to pick your brain about. And where can we get more information about you, man?
1: My biggest avenue is going to be my Instagram page. And it's just Michael Courier BJJ. I'm getting better about doing YouTube stuff. I'm getting more and more subscribers. So Uh, I've got to give that the old college try and pump that up. But Instagram is the go-to for me.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show, man.
1: Always, man. Always.